and we're reading from verse 18 down to verse 27. And uh, we're continuing our wee sermon series here in uh, Word and Deed, um, Cross Before Me, The World Behind Me, and this morning we're looking at Word and Deed. So let's read together Luke chapter 9, verses 18 down to verse 27. Now, it, had, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. I'm going to start at the end of our verses this morning, um, very briefly, because verse 27 is sometimes a verse that confuses people when it reads, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, this verse, like I said, has caused some confusion for people, um, because if you take it as some have in the past, it sounds like Jesus got it wrong, because he was speaking to his disciples, and he's saying to them that you're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And the way that people say that Jesus got it wrong here is because they link this to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they say that this is what Jesus is meaning here is that there'll be some people who will still be alive when I return. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus means. Firstly, because I don't think Jesus can be wrong. But secondly, because it's a bit clumpy and it doesn't work with the language that we have here in verse 27. If you read with me, it says, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So if like some have said, this is about Jesus' return. How are they going to taste death after Jesus comes back? That doesn't make sense. And actually, what I would posit here, what I would argue for, is that Jesus is speaking, and it's hard to exactly say what Jesus is speaking about here, about the, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. I would like linking it to either his resurrection or Pentecost. Um, and I think that fits with, um, with, with the the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels, but also it fits with the language we have here because after they saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ and after they saw Pentecost, they tasted death. But anyway, let's go back to the beginning of our verses this morning. I just wanted to give some time so people didn't think I was hiding from that difficult verse. Um, so let's go back to the beginning of our verses this morning. Questions are very important. Questions are really important in life, and there are many important questions that we can get asked. Um, for some of us, it will be, will you marry me? 
For some of us, it'll be, do you want to make that a large when we're going through the McDonald's driveway? Questions are important. And there are some big questions that we get asked in life. But I would say there are none bigger than the question that Jesus asks his disciples here. And why is it a big one? Well, the answer to this question, I would argue, determines your eternal destination. And the question that Jesus asked his disciples are, is, who do people say that I am? I want to leave that and let it linger. And I want you to think about it. Who do you say that Jesus is this morning? And Jesus begins by asking his disciples a question in verse 18. Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, why does Jesus ask questions? Jesus asks questions a lot of times in his ministry here on earth. And it's never for his benefit. He doesn't need to ask this question because he needs some more information or new information. It's not so that he can get some affirmation, but because he was using this as a teaching opportunity, but also because the question that he was about to ask the disciples was an important one. And who they believed he was made all the difference in their life. Who you believe Jesus is makes all the difference in your life. So the first question Jesus asks them is, who do, you, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples give the thought of the day. That's what Jesus is asking. What is the consensus out there? about What are people saying about me? And we see that actually the answer that the disciples give about John the Baptist raised from the dead, or Elijah raised from the dead, or the prophets of old raised from the dead, that actually this was the consensus. This was what many people were thinking about um, who Jesus was. They thought that it was obviously one of the prophets of old who'd been raised from the dead, and because they'd been raised from the dead, they would have some extra power that they could do some of the miracles that Jesus had been performing. And we see earlier on in Luke chapter 9, where Herod himself is perplexed by Jesus, and he asks, who is this person? And the answers he gets are John the Baptist, prophets of old, or Elijah. And Herod is a bit confused and perplexed because it was him himself that sent John the Baptist to be beheaded. They give the thought of the day. I wonder if we asked, if I asked you this morning, who do people say Jesus is? Out there in the world, in the city center of Glasgow, in the east end of Glasgow, maybe even in your house, who do people say Jesus is? Who do the crowds in our day say Jesus is? Is he a good teacher? Was he somebody who lived years ago that did some good stuff? Was he someone that my granny used to tell me about when I was a wee boy when she would take me to Sunday school to give my mum or dad the afternoon off? Is he a made-up character in some made-up book? Is he a guy who sits on a cloud up there playing harps and like we see in the, some of the adverts on TV? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus then makes it personal. He makes it personal when he asks the second question. 
He asks the first question to open up this conversation, and then he asks the second question and makes it personal for the disciples. You see, the you that he says here in verse 19 is emphasized. Who do you say that I am? I've heard who they say I am, but what about you? I've just given you some examples of who the world say Jesus is. But what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? The you here is emphasized. And Jesus didn't just want repetition from his disciples. He wanted a personal confession. He wanted them to declare who he was. He didn't want them to say who the people out there said Jesus was. He wanted them to say what they thought about Jesus in here, in their heart. The Christian faith is meant to be personal. But Jesus makes it personal. Jesus asks this question, who do you say that I am? He didn't just want them to say what people out there thought about Jesus, but he wanted them to say what they thought about Jesus in here, in their hearts. The Christian faith is meant to be personal. Friends, you cannot piggyback on someone else's walk with Jesus. You cannot piggyback on someone else's walk with Jesus. So it's good if your spouse is saved. It's good if your grandmother was saved. But what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Not just repetition, not just what you hear people in our church say, but what is your heart's response? Is Jesus just some good moral teacher? Is Jesus just a guy who did some good stuff many years ago? Or is Jesus, as Peter answered, the Christ? Is Jesus who he says he is in your life? What are you waiting for? I wonder what it is you're waiting for. Life is precious. We saw that yesterday as many of us watched the football in the afternoon when we saw the distressing and heartbreaking moments where Christian Eriksen, a footballer who plays for Denmark, just collapsed on the pitch and needed to be given CPR, needed to be Um, a, a defib used on him. Many started praying. Many people who aren't churchgoers, that is always the go-to, isn't it? Is all over Twitter, all over social media. Pray, pray, pray. Life is precious. You see, we're not promised tomorrow. And thank the Lord Prayers were answered and they managed to resuscitate Christian Eriksen. And he's now stable in hospital. But we aren't promised tomorrow. You could go to work tomorrow and, and not come home. You could go to sleep tonight and not wake up. We're not promised tomorrow. So do not put off this question that Jesus asks in his word about who do you say he is. Don't put off answering that question, but answer it. And I pray you would answer it the same way Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. 
See how it goes from about being the disciples. As Jesus began, he was speaking to his disciples, but then he asks them, he asks Peter. Peter answers, he makes it personal. The gospel doesn't knock on the door of your house. The gospel doesn't knock on the door of our church. The gospel knocks on the door of your heart. Our Savior is a personal Savior. And it's not about group consensus. But it's about an individual confessing who Christ is. And what an answer it is that Peter gives. You're the Christ of God. The angels have already proclaimed this at the beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 2, where we see the birth of Jesus. We see Simeon being revealed to Simeon that he would see the Christ as he waited in the temple. The demons knew who Jesus was as well, we see earlier on in Luke's gospel. And then Jesus in Luke chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, he indirectly um, points to himself being the Christ when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. But this is the first time we see or hear the disciples declare that Jesus is the Christ. They had spent time with him. They had seen his miracles. They had seen him raise the dead. They'd seen his power over nature. We'd seen his, him healing the sick. They'd heard his teaching. Now who else could he be after all they'd experienced, after all they had witnessed? What other answer could they come up with if they were true? After all they'd seen, after all they'd heard, after all they'd witnessed, What else could they answer this question? You are the Christ of God. You are the promised one of God, the anointed one. You are the promised descendant of David. You are God's Messiah. So why the silence in verse 21 and 22? Why does Jesus ask him to keep it hush-hush? Why the silence? strictly charged them not to tell this to anyone. That's a shift we see when we then end up hearing about the Great Commission later on in the Gospels after Jesus' death and resurrection. But now, at this moment in time, Jesus asked them, keep this quiet. Don't tell anyone. Why? Because they had missed something. They had missed something, even though they gave the right answer. They said the right words. They missed something about what it meant to be the Christ of God. We see this later on in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, where they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? You see, they missed it. They, like many people, expected this Messiah, the, the anointed one, the chosen one, the promised one, that the, the Christ would come as a conquering king. That's not what we see promised in the Old Testament. The one we read about so clearly in Isaiah, who would come as a suffering servant, not to be served, but to serve. The one who would come as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. They missed what it meant to be truly to be the Christ. Jesus hadn't come to be some conquering king, but had come to be the Christ who was the suffering servant. And as I said, the angels had already declared 
that Jesus was the Christ when we see him being born in this world. And as they proclaim him to be the Christ in Luke chapter 2, we see attached to that title is Christ. We see the word Savior being used as well. And to be the Christ who was the Savior. And for Jesus to be able to save his people from their sins. He had to give his life as a sacrifice. That's why they couldn't share this with anyone. Not because what they said was incorrect. They had to keep it silent because what Peter had just declared was so true. Because Jesus was the Christ. And because of this, as he goes on and he prophesies his own passion, his own suffering and death and resurrection. Don't miss that. He doesn't leave them without any hope. He says, on the third day be raised. Because Jesus was the Christ, he would have to suffer and die, but it wasn't time yet. He still had to be rejected. He still had to be the cornerstone rejected by the builders. And we see that word here in, in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must it wasn't a mistake the way Jesus ended up on the cross. It needed to happen. There was no other way. It was all part of God's redemption plan for your redemption. That even though he would be rejected, even though he would suffer, even though he would die, three days later, Jesus prophesied he would be raised to life again. So Jesus has asked them a couple of questions. Who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? And then Peter gives his answer, you are the Christ of God. And then Jesus very graciously gives them a wee insight into what that means to be the Christ. Not about coming as some conquering king, but what it meant to be the Christ. He shows them a glimpse of this in verses 21 and 22. And then Jesus says to them this, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, yes, what you've said is true. But it means I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. But I will be raised back to life. Because what you've said is true. If you want to follow after me, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow. See, faith entails more than just affirming the truth of the gospel. It also entails actively following Jesus daily. Faith entails more than just affirming the truth of the gospel. It also entails actively following Jesus daily. So Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Now Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, then you have to deny yourself. You have to pick up your cross and you're going to have to follow me. Three conditions that Jesus gives for discipleship. Deny yourself is the first. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be called a disciple, if you want to be a Christian, you have to deny yourself. 
Jesus says. This is more than just changing a couple of bad habits in our life or singing an extra couple of hymns during our week or adding a wee bit more good deeds into our day. This is about submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is about saying, Jesus, you must increase and I must decrease. This is exactly where the rich young ruler stumbled, wasn't it? said the right stuff. I've done all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, sell everything you have and follow after me. He goes away sad. Why? Because he couldn't deny, deny himself. He couldn't deny himself. Now, it's not wrong to be rich, but it's wrong to submit to your money over your Savior? Are you seeking first God's kingdom? Are you seeking first his kingdom? It is the call on the disciple, seek first my kingdom. If not, why not? They've confessed with words who Jesus is. You're the Christ. And now what Jesus is saying here is, it's not just about you affirming the truth with your lips. You now have to live it out in deed. It's one thing to say that you're a follower of Jesus. It's one thing to say that you're a Christian. But does your life mirror your profession? That's why when we, people become members in the Church of Scotland, we ask them to profess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. But then we talk about, you know, things, active things that you can see in your life. About praying at the prayer meeting, about, about reading your scriptures, about um, offering off your time, your talents, and your money. It's not just about saying, you know, with my lips that Jesus is Lord, your life has to show that you've submitted. As James says later on in the New Testament, faith without works is dead. You can't follow Jesus and live for yourself. It just doesn't work. We as disciples need to let the words of Scripture become visible in our life. And it starts by denying ourselves. That is so countercultural. That is so off putting for so many people. It is so offensive to hear. You cannot live for yourself, you have to live for Jesus. And those of us who know Jesus in our hearts say, absolutely, there's no other way to live other than living for Jesus. Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am and have and ever hope to be. All my ambitions, hopes and plans. I submit them. I surrender them into your hands. For it's only in your will that I am free. But those of us who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is so off-putting. And I pray if that is how you're responding, I pray that God's grace and mercy would touch your heart in this very moment and he would bring you into life. So you have to deny yourself. The second one is you have to pick up your cross daily. Daily. Life doesn't become a bed of roses when you become a Christian. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions outside there about what it means to be a Christian. 
that people think that, that, that actually when we become a Christian that everything's rosy, everything goes well. And do you know, maybe that's how we've presented it in the church. And if that has been the case, then we need to repent for that. Because it's not that we've got everything right and we know everything and, you know, everything's easy for us. But we have a hope and a sure foundation that regardless of what we face in this life, we can face it with confidence. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And it's not about becoming a bed of roses when you become a Christian. That's not what we read in Scripture. That's not what we see in the Gospels, in the New Testament. And it's not, especially not what we see in the majority of Christians' experience in this world where so many people are persecuted daily for their faith. What do we see in the New Testament is the prevalence of persecution and, and hardship and even people being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ and their commitment to Him. And we see it across the world as well. In many parts of the world where the, 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 being a Christian is illegal. The church is exploding and growing at such a fast rate. I wonder if Christianity became illegal in this country overnight. And if it became illegal to be caught with a Bible or worshipping or singing praise songs or praying. You could end up in prison or even worse, as many people across the world, you could be killed for it. What would you do? What would you do? I think what you would do really depends on the answer to who you say that Jesus is. Who you say he is impacts and influences your whole life. Because he is the Christ of God, I can deny myself. Because he is the Christ of God, I can pick up my cross daily and follow. And when we hear about the cross, we think automatically about the, the cross of Calvary, don't we? So we think of straight away, it's embedded in our head. We think about Jesus' death and maybe even his resurrection. But at this moment in time, when Jesus is addressing his disciples, the cross hasn't happened yet. Jesus has, yes, he's just prophesied about it, but they wouldn't have been fully aware, even if they had fully understood his prophecy, what was coming. So what does the cross mean for them? When they heard about picking up your cross daily, what did that mean for them? Well, the cross in first century wasn't just a figure of speech as many of us make it now. It's a lovely little line we put in some of our praise songs or our hymns. And yes, it pulls on the heartstrings and that's not what it meant for them. For them to hear about picking up your cross daily, the cross for them was not just a figure of speech, but it was an abhorrent way to cruelly punish criminals in a painful way, in a gruesome way. In 71 BC, the Romans defeated the rebellion led by Spartacus and they crucified him and 6,000 of his followers. So to hear that they had to pick up their cross and follow after Jesus. This was a big thing. The cross signified a total claim on life. A total claim on life. Jesus is saying to them, you can't do this half-hearted. This isn't like the hokey pokey where you're in and out, in and out. This is about loyalty. It requires commitment. 
This isn't what I would call offshore Christianity, where you're on for two weeks and then you're off for two weeks, which is sadly so often the experience we see in people's life in church. They're around for a wee bit, they disappear for a wee bit, they come back for a wee bit, they disappear for a wee bit. They're here when they've got time, but when life gets busy, they, they, you know, church is the first thing to go off. How can that be the case, case if, if you have just said that Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ of God? How could you live like that? It's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus gave his all for your all. And then thirdly, Jesus says you have to follow. We have to die to our old ways of life. We are new creations. It's like what we thought about last week when they had just caught that massive catch of fish and then Jesus calls them and what do they read? They left their nets and left everything and they followed him. We are new creations. The old has gone and new has come. The gospel gives a big call and the call of the gospel is a life changing one. And what's interesting is that the verb used here for follow is a present imperative. And that means it is continual. It's not a one-off event that you follow Jesus when you give your heart to him and then that's it. But as we see here in the original Greek, follow, the verb used for follow is a present imperative, which means it is continual. So if you are a follower of Jesus, it is a daily thing. It isn't a one-off event, but it is an everyday occurrence. That's why Jesus says here, you have to pick up your cross daily. This sounds hard. Some of you might be sitting there going, you know what, I'm not up for that. It's not what I signed up for. It sounds hard because it is. Because narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And only a few will find it. That's why Jesus told his disciples to wait in the upper room after his ascension. So that they could be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because we do not do this in our own strength. This is a process of sanctification. It is a journey. And it's done through the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Making us more like the one whom we love. Jesus the Christ of God. And Jesus continues this thought in verses 24 and 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus here gives a paradox. And the first save he talks about here is, if you save something, you're going to lose it. And the save he's speaking about here are those who just keep on living as they always have. Those who reject denying Jesus. Who want to save their own skin and, and live for themselves. They might get a longer life in this world and it might be a bit more comfortable for them. But ultimately, they will lose their life. They will lose their soul because they will be eternally lost. And then the second lose that Jesus speaks about here, this is the paradox, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
This losing for my sake is about those that will deny themselves for Jesus. Those who will follow out what Jesus has just said here about denying themselves, picking up their cross and following after him. This doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom. This doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have to, you know, actually have our lives ended for Jesus. It might lead to people being killed for their faith. But even if it gets to that point, ultimately they'll be saved. Because they've put their hope and trust in the right thing in this life. In the name and in the salvation that Jesus alone can offer. And they will be saved even if they deny themselves, even if they lose their life for the sake of Jesus, because they will be with him for eternity. And Jesus, uh, he asks another question in verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And Jesus asks this question again to further drive home the point that he is making. And that point is this, you could have all the comforts in this life, you could have all the wealth, all the material things, all the things that this world says are good and that you should be aiming for and striving for, but what is the point in it if it's to the expense of your eternal salvation? There is no point in it if it is to the detriment of your eternity. This made me think of an old hymn that I, I love, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. What do we see Jesus do in verses 26 and then a wee bit in 27? He does something we often miss or we often forget about how we live in this life impacts on what is to come. He links the now and what is coming. What Jesus means here about being ashamed of me is those who would disown me. Those who don't deny themselves. Friends, we either deny ourselves or we deny Jesus. But do you know what the amazing thing is? And I want to finish on this point. Do you know what the amazing thing is? How gracious Jesus is. How merciful he is. How often we mess up and screw up and get things wrong. And yet, he's still there. Reaching out to us. Calling out to us. Remember, Peter is here. Peter is the one who has said, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus says, and you're going to have to deny yourself. What does Peter end up doing? doesn't deny himself. He ends up denying Jesus three times. But Christ in his mercy meets with Peter on a seashore, has breakfast with him, and restores him. 
That's how gracious Jesus is. The call is a hard one. But he empowers us. He picks us up when we get things wrong and he dusts us off. He says, go again. So even if you feel like, you know, I was following one day. I was so committed. I used to be. But then life got in the way. Things happened. I've turned my back on Jesus. Well, so did Peter. And this morning, Jesus is standing there with outstretched arms and nail-pierced hands, beckoning you in. Like the prodigal son, calling you in so that you would know the embrace of his mercy and his grace. Friends, a genuine profession of faith in Jesus demands more than just proclamation from your lips, but is seen in deed as well as in words. Faith without works is dead. Discipleship is not just a type of spirituality. It is what it is meant to be, a follower of Jesus. It is the call on any who profess Jesus as Lord. You are meant to be a disciple. It is daily. It is costly. But he is so worthy. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your graciousness. We thank you that even when we get things wrong, you're there to dust us off and you pick us up. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that even though the call that you place upon us is a difficult one, that indeed narrow is the way. We thank you, Jesus, it is you that are the way. Help us to submit to you as our Savior, to call out to you as Savior. Maybe we've never done that before. Maybe we've never given an answer to who Jesus is. And Jesus, by your Spirit, would you prompt us, would you convict us to answer that question this morning and help us to put our hope and trust in you for this forgiveness of our sins so that we don't just look to save our own life and end up losing it. And Father, we pray that even if we one day did do a commitment, that we've drifted off and we've got things wrong, thank you that you're there to pick us up, to restore us. That you're the good shepherd. That you restore our souls. So be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.